letter to the Corinthian church. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of this, all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse practice cunning or to falsify God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of the Lord. My <clears throat> fourth grade Sunday school teacher was named Thelma McDaniel. A no-nonsense kind of woman who didn't put up with the sort of monkey shines that we children kept visiting upon her orderly classroom. She had the kind of swoopy hair thing that had been fashionable in the 1950s, but by the early 1970s had become retro and not like in the cool hip way. She wore cat glasses and smelled strongly. A less generous soul might say oppressively of eau de lilac, the scent that all of my childhood Sunday school teachers seemed to smell of. Now I don't remember much of what Thelma McDaniel taught us, but there was this one, one time, one lesson I've mentioned it before. She, she began the class rather ominously for a fourth grade audience, it seems to me now, by saying, you all are sinners. Now we stared blankly back at Ms. McDaniel, not, not knowing whether she was speaking in a general way or if she had something more specific in mind. I mean, what did she know, right? And we all did this sort of quick sin inventory thing, I mean, just to be sure. And she said, do you know how I know you're all sinners? I'm sorry I didn't say it, but I remember thinking, no, actually, I really don't. And she said, well, you see this pencil? And, I, and we all said, yeah. 
yep, yep. And she said, you may say, yes, ma'am. Do not say yup. Yup is what one says to a horse. Yes, ma'am. Now that's better. Now the reason I know that you are sinners is that because, because this pencil has an eraser. <laughs> now apparently we didn't look nearly as enlightened as we should have in the face of such an overwhelmingly obvious object lesson. And she said, the, the, the way God created you, you shouldn't need an eraser. You need an eraser because you make mistakes. And you make mistakes because you're a sinner. Now, I'm pretty sure I know what she meant. But what I heard was, and this actually informed my conception of God, what I heard was, you're a sinner, you're a mistake. Would she ever get any messages like that? Maybe, yeah? A lot of people think that that's what Christianity is actually about. It's a, a sort of hopeless attempt to follow the rules and to ensure that the church will supply a sufficient number of disapproving busybodies only too happy to remind you that you can't follow all the rules. Now, Paul understands this impulse. He, he's got a really tough job. Uh, he's long endured aggravation at the hands of the Corinthian church, which is a church that had seen some rather grievous infighting over leadership, disagreements over sexual infidelity. It was quite a, it was quite a hotbed. Moreover, there was division because some of the people considered themselves to be more important than others. They gobbled up all the food at the potluck, for example. They believed their spiritual gifts were, you know, more spiritual than everybody else's. And Paul's already given them one sternly worded Yelp review. But this time around, he's got another problem. It seems that there are those in the Corinthian church who are getting a little self-righteous, at least in Paul's estimation, kind of rule followers, people he considers to be hypocrites. Now, he doesn't come right out and call them that, but Paul's bias is pretty clear, talking about those holier-than-thou types proclaiming themselves to have the truth when, in fact, they only get the fuzziest outlines of the truth since, of course, they only see it through a veil. Now, just prior to our text for this morning, Paul wants to make sure to draw a distinction between the gospel he thinks Jesus is selling, the one that is written on human hearts, and the one he accuses his opponents of following, a fossilized relic of faith written on stone tablets. But just so we're clear, Paul's taking shots at Christians that he considers to be too Jewish. Law, ritual, all of that stuff. And Paul, frankly, comes off as, often as terribly hostile to the Jews. One criticism that Jews have traditionally had is that Paul's vision of Judaism is merely a caricature, a straw man, right? A rhetorical device that no self-rejecting, uh, respecting Jew would ever recognize as the faith that they practice. Because, of course, Judaism is a, it's not about dead laws any more than Christianity is about Franklin Graham, whom many Christians might find to be a caricature of their faith. 
But whatever Paul may be doing, we do not rightly interpret authentic Judaism by dismissing what we only understand through the distorted lens of legalism that came down to us, especially through the Reformation. Now, we got to remember that even according to Paul in the 11th chapter of Romans, the Jews are the people of the covenant, right? Paul says this is a Jewish tree onto which Christians have been grafted, sort of latecomers to the party, so to speak. But Jews are not who Paul has in his sights in this passage. I mean, he's aiming at Christians, whom he accuses of being more concerned with the rules than with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As if the gospel were just a, a replacement set of regulations, a sort of supplemental addendum to the behavioral protocols. Now, apparently, the people against whom Paul is writing give off an air of religious superiority because they can quote chapter and verse, but whose lives bear little of the marks of radical discipleship required of those people who follow Jesus. Now, I, I grew up on the lookout for these people, right? The way I grew up, we, we learned that about God's hall monitors, unpasteurized, persimmon-sucking folks always sort of looking over the top of their glasses and down their nose. We learned about hypocrites by reading the stories about Jesus, ironically assuming ourselves that we were in fact blameless when it came to the question of self-righteousness. Right? I mean, we knew who the good guys were, and they were us. We didn't drink or smoke. We avoided gambling, fisticuffs. We went to church every Wednesday night, twice on Sunday. We, we knew which movies we were supposed to watch and which were too worldly. We spent our time listening to Christian music and cultivating Christian friends who wouldn't lead us astray. But we weren't like those other uptight, sanctimonious bean counters who, who, who couldn't dance or play baseball on Sundays. Or, or go to the movies at all. I mean, we played cry, we played cards for crying out loud. Now hear me, I, I'm, not being, I'm not being sarcastic here. Something of a departure, I'll grant you. But when I was thinking about the sermon, I, I was tempted to do the easy thing, and that is to draw my own straw man about the kinds of folks who spend their time passing out tracts and buying Christian bumper stickers. But, you see, the kinds of people that I grew up with were, were, were sincere. I mean, they were devoted to nurturing a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, we set aside time to read our Bibles and pray as a matter of routine, not as some kind of heroic sacrifice. See, in the faith in which I grew up, we, we, we cared about people's salvation about the disposition of their souls, and, and perhaps more often about the disposition of our own souls, which when we did outreach, it usually involved giving money to missionaries in foreign countries whose job it was to act as God's emissaries and ours to the lost, who'd never had the benefit of being raised an American and a Christian which in retrospect meant pretty much the same thing to us as far as we were concerned. Nevertheless, we heard 
all sorts of stories about people who gave up their lives to keep people from going to hell because they believed all the wrong stuff. Really genuine, authentic belief. So I guess what I'm saying is it was kind of a mixed bag, right? I mean, there's some good people, but people with whom I now have some fundamental disagreements about what following Jesus means. So I need to say that I have an abiding respect for the genuineness of the faith of many of these folks. It's just that very often you won't be surprised to hear, I think they're wrong. Now, to be fair, they think I'm wrong, but... But see, Paul, he doesn't see a lot of gray in this case. One theologian argues that among Paul's chief rivals at Corinth is a, 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 a rhetorical type, a sort of cast, uh, um, a, a stock character. The, the, the pompous parasite, which is a lovely, lo- lovely thing to hang on somebody. But what he means is it, it, it's sort of the, 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 the dinner party guest who puts on airs and abuses everybody else who's standing around the seven-layer dip. You know, the guy who calls people chap and says things like blimey, even though everybody else knows he's from Des Moines. Now, in the 11th chapter, speaking to the Corinthians, Paul says, for you put it up with it when someone makes, uh, when someone enslaves you or, or, or preys upon you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or gives you a slap in the face. You put up with all of that. In other words, Paul draws attention to the kind of people who, who speak authoritatively to the gospel, who are, are, are about the gospel, but who are quick to alert you to their mastery of scriptural texts. And then when it's time to to actually live out the gospel are strangely but obviously missing. Now, I, I don't want to overdraw the picture for some good historical reasons, but I do want to suggest that Paul's primary concern in all of this is about a failure to understand the full implications of the gospel. People just don't get it. The popular conception of Christianity is that it's a religion in which you, 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 you sign on to a sort of set of beliefs that to find salvation, you, you, you have to get right, right? If you're wrong on any of it, if you believe the wrong thing about the virgin birth, the resurrection, or abortion, or being gay, lesbian, or transgender, you name it. If you're wrong about any of that stuff, then you'll find yourself dangerously on the wrong side of God. Well, then after getting the beliefs right, people are convinced that there's an additional set of moral regulations that you have to get right. The, 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 the thou shalt and thou shalt not, which if you don't, once again, brings down the potential wrath of God. Now, the wonderful thing about po- popular versions of Christianity is that it can be done with minimal inconvenience to one's otherwise comfortable lifestyle. I mean, much of it can be accomplished without ever making your back sore or getting your hands dirty. But the trouble is, that doesn't really sound like the gospel that Jesus preaches at all. Jesus, it turns out, 
is interested in establishing the reign of God, but that reign is first about the lives we live as we try to love others before it's ever about suspending the living of our own lives until after we've died. And it's about what's going on around us as much as it is about what's going on inside of us. The reign of God is first a decidedly earthbound affair. It's not primarily about getting all the rituals correct or about managing institutions or about figuring out a new set of laws to follow that will be carved in new stone tablets, but it's about unambiguously unglamorous things like doing justice, practicing mercy, and walking humbly with God. It's about feeding the hungry and visiting the prisoner and giving voice to the oppressed. It's about embracing the immigrant, the foreigner, and those who've been turned away because they're not like us. It's about unmasking the hypocrisy of power structures that allow the wealthy and powerful to keep the poor and the powerless under heel. It's about choosing peace over violence about doing the hard work of forgiving the enemy. It's difficult. I mean, we're, we're, we're witnessing a war on the other side of the globe right now. And we know what the lack of peace means. I remember reading a story about a group of five graduating seniors who were gonna play a prank with some turkeys in the school gym. That, now that sounds like a, uh, uh, the setup for a really awful story, doesn't it? Well, it was, because amidst the adrenaline rush, things kinda got out of hand and the boys did some stuff to the turkeys and it wound up a big bloody mess. Things were so bad that when the school janitor opened the gym, he was horrified when he discovered this mess. Well, of course, the kids were caught and the case went through the legal system, but the judge believed that this prank gone bad had caused great harm to the community and referred it to a restorative justice conference. Now, restorative justice is about finding a resolution to harmful actions that that focuses on the people who've been harmed without giving up on the possibility of redeeming the per person who's done the harm. See, re restorative justice should be something that Christians take an interest in since it's concerned with both the victim and the perpetrator. It, it encourages accountability and responsibility, creating a, a, a healthy environment that heals the harmed and reintegrates the harmer into community. Now, because there were so many different people affected by the prank, there was a question about well, who's going to attend this restorative justice conference. What well, wound up being the five boys and their parents, the superintendent, principal, three school board members, three teachers, a representative from the local faith community, and the janitor who found it all. Now, 35 people there were in all. And when the janitor was asked to participate, he was reluctant to do so. Because after his experience, he was concerned that the conference would be 
some kind of a farce uh, where everybody would just sort of hold hands and sing kumbaya, and the whole thing would be overlooked. Nobody would be held responsible. So tensions, as you can imagine, were running pretty high. Oh, the administrators talked about uh, how betrayed they felt while still sort of acknowledging the basic goodness of the boys. And the students, they, they, they got an opportunity to talk about how the prank got out of hand and, and, and about their own shame and embarrassment. But then the last student got a chance to speak and with his sort of body shaking, talking about how he felt he really just couldn't walk down the street anymore and look people in the eye because of how much shame he carried around. But near the end of the conference, the facilitator asked if there were any final comments. And the janitor raised his hand, and everybody in the room fell silent because they remembered what he thought about this whole thing. And he addressed the young men, and he said that he accepted their apologies. And then he turned to the last young man who'd spoken, and he said to him, listen, Next time you see me on the street, you can look me in the eye because I will remember you for who you were tonight and not for what you did. See, Christianity isn't a hopeless affair concerned only with getting it right, avoiding mistakes. It's not about a stone tablet full of rules and people sort of looking over our shoulders to make sure that we're following all of them. Christianity is the hope that we will live like Jesus, having our lives transfigured, dying to ourselves in the service of lifting others up. And since we have such a hope, we dare to embody the reign of God right here, right now, pursuing mercy and justice, seeking to give ourselves away so that the world might be, so that the world might experience peace, liberation, and ultimately forgiveness, because that's who we are. That's finally what it means to be followers of Jesus. Because while we may need erasers, God doesn't. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.